the Pelvic Rehab Research Podcast. My name is Becca Bissadolshemsky, and I'll be your host guiding you as we take a deep dive into all things pelvic floor and research-based. Whether you're a pelvic newbie or a seasoned clinician, I'm here to help busy therapists listen through the Women's Health Study Guide. So if you're studying for the Women's Certified Specialist Exam or just interested in learning more about pelvic health research, we've got you covered. Hey everyone, and welcome back. The last Borgstein article in week four is on exercise, sports participation, and musculoskeletal disorders of pregnancy and postpartum. She was joined in authoring this article with David Fogelman and Catherine Ackerman, and they're all MDs. The medical community has long touted the benefits of exercise as a healthy lifestyle, but until recently, it had been thought that pregnant women should engage in only mild to moderate bouts of exercise. So for example, when the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, released a set of recommendations regarding physical activity during pregnancy in 1985, it was suggested that women should limit themselves to no more than 15 minutes of continuous activity, not exceeding a heart rate of 140 beats per minute. Since then, the vast majority of research and expert opinions have indicated that more strenuous activities for longer durations during an uncomplicated pregnancy likely have neutral or even positive effects on both the mother and the baby. Fatigue, discomfort, lack of time, safety concerns, and some of those musculoskeletal disorders that we just spoke about earlier are some barriers to exercise for pregnant and postpartum women. In this article, the authors review the current literature regarding the short and the long-term effects of regular exercise on the health of the child and the mother during and after gestation. So let's start with the exercise effects on the fetus. A Cochrane review examined exercise intervention studies in sedentary women who had begun exercise programs during pregnancy. The studies found no clinically significant effect on exercise on mean birth weight, duration of gestation, a five-minute APGAR score, or the risk of C-section delivery. Studies of pregnant women who exercise regularly pre-pregnancy have tested the effects of quantity of exercise more aggressively. In one study, women who exercise more than five times weekly pre-pregnancy were randomized to continue their exercise frequency or to decrease their exercise to less than three times weekly. There were no significant differences in the mean birth weight of babies from either of the groups. In one research study, they randomized athletic pregnant women to three different exercise regimens starting at eight weeks gestation. There was a group that was one, a low-high group which consisted of 20 minutes, five days per week through week 20, with gradual increasing in 60 minutes, five days per week by week 24, and then maintaining that regimen until delivery. A mod-mod group, which was 40 minutes, five days per week from week eight until delivery, and then a high-low group, which was 60 minutes, five days a week through week 20, gradually decreasing to 20 minutes, five days per week by week 24, and then maintaining that regimen until delivery. Maternal weight gain, placental volumes, and indices of placental function were greatest in the high-low group, while offspring of this group were lighter and had less body fat. In 2007, another researcher published data on exercise and the risk of miscarriage in 92,671 women enrolled in the Danish National Birth Cohort. The main outcome was the fetal loss prior to 22 weeks gestation. Miscarriage was 3.7 times more likely in those who exercised more than 7 hours per week compared with the non-exercisers. High-impact exercise was associated with the greatest risk. 
So there was no association between exercise and the risk of miscarriage after 18 weeks of gestation. And this study should be interpreted cautiously due to recall bias, but it does raise some concern about type and amount of exercise during pregnancy. Even fewer studies have examined the fetal impacts of intensity of exercise during pregnancy. In a somewhat extreme study, six pregnant Olympic-level endurance athletes who had trained for 15 to 22 hours per week before pregnancy were treadmill tested once at 23 to 29 weeks of pregnancy. Mean uterine artery blood flow was reduced to 60 to 80% after the warm-up and stayed at 40 to 75% of the initial value during treadmill running. Fetal heart rate was within the normal range as long as the women exercised below 90% of their maximal heart rate. Fetal bradycardia and the mean uterine artery volume blood flow was less than 50% of the initial value when the women exercised above 90% of their maximal heart rate. So, to no one's surprise, there are extremes of exercise that are not likely healthy for the fetus. Let's talk about exercise effects on the mothers. Pregnancy and postpartum is a very baby-centric time, and maternal effects should also still be on our forefront. Maternal effects of exercise are more easily assessed than fetal effects. Maternal benefits include improved cardiovascular function, less pregnancy weight gain, decreased musculoskeletal discomfort, reduced cramping and edema, mood stability, improved self-image, and less gestational diabetes and gestational hypertension. For exercise guidelines, we have some professional studies weighing in there. ACOG and SOGC, which is the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, as well as the Canadian Society for Exercise Physiology, has released increasingly permissive guidelines over the past 25 years. Although there are some slight differences between the two, both recommend that all women without limiting complications engage in some form of exercise. An exercise program should not be used as a means to lose weight while pregnant or as an attempt to reach peak fitness or train for an athletic competition. In general, the first two trimesters are the optimal time to engage in an exercise program. After 24 weeks, it's normal to experience increased difficulty with activity that is normally pretty easy. Optimal exercise during pregnancy increases the heart rate without introducing a greater risk of heat stress, trauma, or impaired oxygenation to the fetus. It's been shown that the maternal body temperature response to submaximal workloads declines throughout pregnancy. Exercise-associated thermal stress to the fetus is significantly reduced by maternal physiologic adaptations to pregnancy. So for example, changes in resting temperature, thermal mass, sweating threshold, and venous capacity. Because heat dissipation is largely achieved through sweat, maintenance of hydration is critical to heat balance. Some obvious recommendations of activities to avoid include anything that would increase fall risk, abdominal trauma, or disturbing the O2 balance. So we're thinking downhill skiing, contact sports, and that beloved scuba diving that we've come to hear so much about. You know when you're told you can't do something so much that you end up wanting to do it more? That might just be me and scuba diving whenever I'm pregnant after reading through all of these articles. So this article also mentions avoiding the supine position, noting that women should not exercise in the supine position after the first trimester, as the gravid uterus can compress the inferior vena cava, decreasing uterine blood flow as well as increasing lower back pain. Also, despite a natural increase in resting heart rate during pregnancy, so a 10 to 15 beats per minute increase, the heart rate increases less during exercise in a pregnant woman. The maximal heart rate partially depends on the age of the pregnant woman as well as her fitness level. So remember those earlier articles on female athlete and pregnancy if you want some more information on heart rate and VO2 levels for specific fitness levels. This article just is a really vague brief over that's easy to apply to clinical practice. So I'm just gonna verbally review that quickly. 
For under 20 years old, heart rate is listed at 140 to 155 beats per minute. For 20 to 29, heart rate is listed at 135 to 150 beats per minute. For 30 to 39, heart rate is listed at 130 to 145 beats per minute. For over 40, heart rate is listed at 25 to 140 beats per minute. And just remember that's the maximal heart rate that they are saying depending on the age of the pregnant woman. So both American and Canadian recommendations include that talk test as a valuable indicator of exercise intensity. Remember that this is not indicative of optimal exercise level for the patient, but represents more of a level of safe exercise without an inappropriate heart rate response. So when do we stop exercise? I'm happy to go over when to discontinue exercise a million times. Repetition was totally my friend with studying. So remember that this is to discontinue exercise, not a contraindication for exercise. I can go over those too. So for discontinuing, we're stopping exercise with things like vaginal bleeding, dizziness, excess shortness of breath, chest pain, headaches, muscle weakness, calf pain or swelling, painful uterine contractions, decreases in fetal movement, and any loss of amniotic fluid. Now let's go over the contraindications of exercise. Contraindications include absolute and relative contraindications. For absolute contraindications, any pregnancy with a ruptured membrane, risk factors for preterm labor, hypertension disorders, incompetent cervix, growth-restricted fetus, anyone with triplets or more, placenta previa over 28 weeks gestation, persistent bleeding in the second and the third trimesters, uncontrolled type 1 diabetes, uncontrolled thyroid diseases, or uncontrolled cardio or respiratory disorders. Then for the relative contraindications, we're thinking any previous spontaneous abortions and any previous preterm births. So some really safe exercises that are almost always recommended includes things like walking and swimming, and those are especially safe for women who weren't very active prior to pregnancy. Now let's go over the contraindications of exercise. A lot of people also like swimming because it helps the body to stay cool during exertion and it doesn't increase lower extremity edema. For women who are active prior to pregnancy, running, strength training, and some racket sports may be continued, particularly early in pregnancy. So pickleball moms are serious, by the way. If you haven't played pickleball or treated any pickleballers, that's a racket sport I have the hardest time getting them away from. So typically I just end up making sure they're not playing intense competitions or putting themselves at risk for getting hit. But in case you didn't know, the MLP is very real. (laughs) So we're going to always encourage a warm-up period for exercise, as we should with any patient, but especially our pregnancy patients. So now on to postpartum exercise. Women are encouraged to return to activity as tolerated, and we're thinking gradual returns to exercise. Many physiologic changes of pregnancy persist for four to six weeks after delivery. Limited evidence suggests that sustained and regular physical activity in the postpartum period reduces the incidence of depression and fatigue. Postpartum depression is multifactorial, so I think this makes sense that it says that it's limited. I don't think any of us would advise our patients who reach out to us regarding mood disorder symptoms with a, you should try exercising more comment, but it's positive to see that research is being produced and they found some things that help. Also, there's no evidence that physical activity adversely affects breast milk production or composition. Intense exercise, though, is going to be different. There's an increase in lactic acid within breast milk with intense activity, but with that being said, the effect of lactic acid on the breastfeeding habits of the infant is unclear. 
If the infant is found to feed less immediately following exercise, feeding before activity is recommended. Other options they include, such as pumping before exercise or waiting one hour post-exercise for breastfeeding. Hypertensive disorders and preeclampsia accounts for 16% of all pregnancy-related deaths in the United States. Preeclampsia is a hypertensive disorder characterized by maternal hypertension, edema, and proteinuria. This occurs in 2-6% of even our healthy nulliparous pregnant women. It's potentially lethal with complications including disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, cerebral hemorrhage, liver failure, and acute renal failure. What we do know is that women who regularly participate in a recreational physical activity in the first 20 weeks of pregnancy have a 35% reduced risk of preeclampsia. In one study, women who participated in regular stair climbing demonstrated a 44 to 69 reduction in incidence of preeclampsia. I'm not sure why they looked at just stair climbing versus walking, but I thought that was interesting. The general thought of how exercises helps hinder preeclampsia's development is by including decreased blood pressure, lowering pro-inflammatory cytokine concentration, reducing blood levels of leptin, reducing oxidative stress, and improving lipid levels. There's currently no data regarding the impact of exercise during pregnancy on the development of chronic hypertension, and there's not a consensus regarding the recommended level of activity for women presenting with elevated blood pressure early in pregnancy. So moving into gestational diabetes, it's defined as diabetes first diagnosed during pregnancy. So it's multifactorial in etiology, and sedentary lifestyle is just one risk factor. Gestational diabetes affects 14% of pregnancies. One meta-analysis found that the odds of developing GDM were 2.1, 3.6, and 8.6 times higher among overweight, obese, and severely obese compared with normal weight pregnant women, respectively. Complications of GDM include fetal macrosomia, with the shoulders growing disproportionately to the head. So you can imagine that this would make birth difficult, with more C-sections occurring in this population. There's also an increase in fetal lethargy due to excessive body fat. The newborn baby's pancreas will continue to deliver increased level of insulin even after the umbilical supply of the increased glucose is cut off, which can lead to dangerous hypoglycemia. Just as an aside, the authors note that the babies born following a pregnancy complicated by GDM are more likely to also develop type 1 or type 2 diabetes in life. Modifiable risk factors include physical inactivity, obesity and overweight, previous GDM, and a history of macrosomic babies. Among women who are physically active in the first trimester, there's a 48% reduction in GDM incidence, so exercise has been effective as a preventative measure. While prevention seems to lean towards exercise, the benefit of exercise as a treatment for GDM is kind of controversial. Studies have been inconclusive as to whether or not exercise will delay or prevent the need for insulin treatment. Nutritional intervention combined with exercise, though, has been found to be more effective. Women with a normal body mass index of 18.5 to 24.9 prior to pregnancy are recommended to gain between 25 and 35 pounds during pregnancy. This article notes that researchers found that postpartum women who perceived themselves as physically active, as well as those who got more sleep, tended to have less weight retention. The article then goes into things like the structure of the pelvic walls, the joints of the pelvis, and sex differences between the pelvises. I think that these are things we've already addressed and discussed in depth before, so the provided material is really brief. I'm just going to move into the nerves of the pelvis for a minute. Remember that the lumbosacral trunk passes down into the pelvis and joins the sacral nerves as they emerge from the anterior sacral foramina. 
From a clinical perspective, the important nerve branches that are associated with clinical syndromes of pregnancy and childbirth include the sciatic, the obturator, the femoral, the lateral femoral cutaneous, and the pudendal nerves. The authors finished the article with a quick review on all of the musculoskeletal disorders we spoke about in the past two articles. You may all actually just get deja vu with hearing me say the words carpal tunnel, dequervians, and transient osteoporosis of the hip, so I'll spare you. One thing I'll briefly mention again is rectus diastasis. Remember that separation of the rectus abdominis from the linea alba is common, occurring in up to 67% of women. Hormonal changes are implicated as well as biomechanical strains as a result of the growing uterus. So let's bring back some of those takeaway points, also known as take-home points and key points. I think I changed my verbiage a lot, so just bear with me. Women can perform moderate exercise during pregnancy without anticipated harm to fetus or mother. Know when to discontinue exercise versus when not to even begin an exercise regimen. Know the hip, lumbar, and sacral nerves. Become best friends with the sciatic, obturator, pudendal, and femoral nerves. These are key players in pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, and understanding the exact nerve that is cranky will help get those patients better care faster. And last but certainly not least, don't scuba dive when you're pregnant. This may be the most agreed upon item we've seen throughout our entire studying guide so far. So next up, we're moving out of Borgstein articles into an ACOG committee opinion on exercise and the postpartum year. Since it's two pages, it's likely to be combined with the Albert 2000 article, following it on pelvic girdle pain. So I appreciate you all listening and supporting this podcast. I truly do see every review and listen, and I hope that this continues to be a resource for all of you during the craziness that is studying for the WCS. So I hope to see you all listening to our next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye.